0: How many of y'all know that the family is a big deal? Um, Especially when it comes down to who we will eventually become later on into adulthood. I think we all understand that the family that we are exposed to and nurtured in uh, has a huge effect on uh, how life is shaped for us, right? Uh, What I'm trying to communicate this morning is that there is a direct line of sight from our past to our present. From where we come from to who we are. That sin often just runs in the family, kind of like this runaway train. It's like something that, man, I, I didn't even, I didn't even ask for that, because uh, I, I, you can't, you can't, you know, you can't ask for the family you're born into. And a lot of us, you know, we're just born into some, an environment or into a family dynamic where there is real challenges that we have to deal with that other people don't. Much like your DNA or the color of your eyes, sin also exists in your genetic code, and it is passed down from parent to parent, like, to to grandchild, right? And so the point I'm trying to make is that none of us really start off with a blank slate. Your past has shaped your present, but it doesn't have to determine your future. We are in uh, week three of a teaching series, uh, Family Matters, and uh, man, uh, excited about this series, excited to jump in. A couple things first, if you're in my class on Wednesday nights, you're going to notice just a little bit of crossover in content this morning, not a lot, but some, uh, and then just a disclaimer to the uh, to all of us, really, uh, the subject that we're going to be talking about this morning is not easy, uh, in fact, I'd say it's pretty complex, and I tell you that right up front because I, I want you to know that I am very aware that I am not an expert, and I am certainly not trying to give the impression that I am one, okay, uh, but when it comes to messages like this, I, I really do my best to try to be well-read, well-researched, I try to diligently prepare, but look, I do not know all that there is to know about the subject we're going to be talking about this morning, nor do I have enough time to really unpack every uh, nuanced idea around it, okay? Uh, My heart uh, just simply um, is not to be the expert in the room, but really to pass along some of the things that I've learned, some of the things that have been helpful to me in hopes that they would be helpful to you, all right? So let's just kind of start from there today Um, as we look at this teaching series, Family Matters. Um, we've been looking at the importance of the family because look, whether you like it or not, uh, how many of you all know that the family really does matter, right? It really does matter. How many of you all know that the family is a big deal? Um, Especially when it comes down to who we will eventually become later on into adulthood. I think we all understand that the family that we are exposed to and nurtured in uh, has a huge effect on uh, how life is shaped for us, right? I think we all understand that. I think I think we understand that the environment that we grow up in and the family dynamics that we're exposed to uh, will oftentimes become, you know, the default mode or default mold uh, for how we will eventually design our own families. And in order to kind of break some of that and, and, and you know, if, if there are things that need to be changed, uh, it requires... Uh, like real intentionality uh, to design something different than what you have seen modeled for you um, throughout your family of origin. Are are, are we in agreement on that? Like, it's not easy to do that. Not not easy to to, to change some patterns and some habits and and, and things like like that. I wanna kind of show you how this, um, take it a step further and showing you how this works. You know, how many of y'all know that marriage is is not easy? Anybody willing to acknowledge that? Okay, um, I don't know, maybe there's some of you. Uh, there's no two people who know that more than uh, than my wife and I um, Marriage is not easy we've had our fair share uh, especially in the early days um, I, I don't know um, in the early days uh, there was a lot of love and a lot of war uh, is that is that all right uh, and and uh, you know um, sometimes though the 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 battles or the struggles they weren't even like it wasn't even all on war it was just more like border skirmishes you know like like uh, no this is what i what I think and this is what I think and uh this is how you should fold laundry or whatever it is you know the whole thing and um you know i as i've kind of looked back on some of this you know i think that that some of the root cause for some of the struggles that we faced especially early on was was the fact that i was raised one way and she was raised another and and you know it, it's just it's just worlds apart when you think about how differently we were raised i was raised in a big city in the southwest she was raised in a small town in the midwest right um I grew up with a dad who was a pastor, and she grew up with a dad who was a forklift operator at a Nestle factory. I mean, big differences, like big differences. And so, you know, early on, we would face different different challenges or different struggles, and there was a lot of love and grace, and we would get past it. But but it, every once in a while, you know, you know, uh, and and I think I think it was interesting, you know, like like these 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 struggles or whatever, oftentimes were were the result of, you know, how differently we were raised and shaped by you know our family of origin. And what it would do is it would cause us to, to tend to maybe look at things differently. Like, I got this perspective, and I know I'm right. And she's got this perspective, and she knows she's right. And, and look, she, um, you know, my wife's amazing. But don't be fooled by, like, how cute and, and uh, small. She's scrappy, okay? Uh, <laughs> real scrappy. Real scrappy, okay? Um, and... Uh, I give you this marriage example because um, I think it really captures a, uh, both a simple and complex truth that, uh, that I think really cuts across the entirety of Scripture. It cuts across the fabric of how life really works. And that is this idea, um, if you're taking notes, that our present is shaped by our past. Our present is shaped by our past. You put it another way, who you are is shaped by where you come from. Right. Who you are is shaped by where you come from. So what I'm really trying to communicate is that I think that there is a direct line of sight, okay, a cause and effect relationship even between your family of origin, the culture you were born into, your socioeconomic upbringing, events in your childhood, everything from trauma, you know, the death of a mom or a dad or, you know, divorce or abuse to, to even great things, you know, like like being born into a Jesus-following family or, you you know, maybe, maybe moving to a new school and, and making new friends who ended up being like lifelong, you know, friends of yours. Or moving to that new school and all of a sudden discovering a new sport and, and that you didn't know you were good at. And it just kind of changes things for you. Uh, what I'm trying to communicate this morning is that there is a direct line of sight from our past to our present. From where we come from to who we are. And I'm sure, right, that this is not like a significant surprise uh, to you. But you know, one of the big reasons for why family really does matter, even if you are someone with a low value for family, which can happen, like if, if you come from from a lot of a lot of junk. Um, I think one of the big reasons is this: if you're taking notes, that, that our our family of origin is the single greatest influence on who we are today. Um, and I know, I know, you know, I could get some pushback. Well, like, what about Jesus? Like, sure, but like, I mean. I'm talking like, I mean, there's so many things that become like default, second, you know, uh, nature to us where we're just like, you know, it just feels normal, is normal, things that we wouldn't even recognize uh, that we need Jesus to uh, to heal or that we need uh, a different, you know, perspective on. Um, and so family of origin, single greatest influence on who we are today. Uh, what do I mean by family of origin? Well, this is certainly, uh, you know, mom, dad, sister, brother, those in your uh, immediate, but You know, family of origin also reaches beyond your immediate nuclear family. It includes your entire extended family as well. So um, going back three to four generations uh, is really what your family of origin is. In fact, I'm going to get into this because there is both um, scriptural and scientific evidence for that time frame specifically of three to four generations back having uh, an impact on who we uh, become, Let me uh, me just start by kind of giving you some of the the scientific evidence. Again, I'm not the expert, um, so take it for what it is. Uh, Dr. Rachel Yehuda is a pioneer in the field of research called epigenetics. Uh, I don't know if we have that word yet, epigenetics. Um, She's made a tremendous progress in this field. Uh, There's still a bit of controversy around it. Um, It's starting to gain some traction, though, uh, in... uh, um, in, in medicine and in scientific circles. According to the Center on the Developing Child at Harvard University, uh, the basic idea of epigenetics is that your genetic code is shaped in part by the environment that you grew up in, meaning that you aren't just the simple byproduct of the genes of your mom and dad, your grandma and your grandpa. Um, they are learning that your genes are also shaped by your family experience. Did you grow up in wealth or did you grow up in poverty? Was there trauma or not? What was your generation like? What did you live through? What did you experience? So epigenetics is making the case that you and I are shaped in part at a genetic level by our environment. It's it's pretty fascinating to think about. Yehuda did a study of Holocaust survivors at New York Mount Sinai Hospital. And and in this study, she she isolated uh, a stress hormone found in the survivors of a concentration camp. Then she went on and she tested their children um, of, of the survivors uh, who had never experienced the concentration camp. So they weren't alive at the time. And then she went on and she tested their grandchildren. And what she, and, and interestingly enough, she found the exact same stress hormone in all three generations. Really interesting. And what she concluded and where she believes this research is taking her is that the trauma of that experience of, of those Holocaust survivors was literally passed down into the genetic code of the next generation, even into the third generation. It's fascinating. I don't know if, if you've ever, uh, uh, you know, heard of, of some of these examples, but you know, um, it, it, there's been more than one case of children of serial killers who will actually try to uh, intentionally make themselves uh, impotent uh, out of, out of uh, concern that, that anything uh, that existed in their uh, you know sociopath parent or psychopath uh, would be passed down into generations to come, right? They don't want to have kids uh, that would carry on any kind of genes like that. It's interesting. Um, it's kind of a big deal. And I think the reason why, um, and I realize that there's 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 you know complications to this, but what it really shows us is this, if you're taking notes that, that when something's not dealt with, in particular emotional pain, it does not go away on its own, but continues to live on, shaping how we see and experience life. Like, like this stuff doesn't just heal itself. It's not something that, that if you just suppress it and ignore it, you know, it's going to just uh, be fine someday. We find that for most people who do that, the things that they have suppressed and tried to forget eventually start to leak out of their life. Maybe you've seen this and noticed this, right? This happens all the time, um, Tragically, as we grow up and enter into adulthood, though, we, are, we become either blind or, uh, at worst, in denial uh, to the ways in which we have been shaped by our past. Um, classic quote by George Santana, You know, many of you probably are familiar with this, but he says that those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. And what he's really saying here is that until we see the ways in which we've been shaped by our past, uh, we face very high odds of unintentionally mirroring and mirroring and, and mimicking uh, the patterns of our family of origin and our culture, um, for better or worse, you know, good or bad, it's kind of a big deal. And a quote worth maybe repeating from last week um, from Rohlheiser was, "Whatever pain is not transformed is transferred." And we're seeing this happen, right? I think I think a lot of us see this in our own life. Um, you know, even if we're if we're trying to be uh, respectful and honoring of, of you know our parents and and In prior generations, I I, I think that that we, if we're honest, can see ways in which maybe things that aren't healthy end up getting passed down. Um, You you tell yourself you're never going to be like your dad, and you're like, oh, shoot, like, like, did I just sound like my dad? You know, it's just crazy how that works. Um, And so whatever pain is not transformed is transferred, and this is something that is scientifically becoming proven by epigenetics. Um, The interesting thing about all of this is, like, it's also true on a spiritual level, Uh, the challenges that our past creates for us, the challenge of some of these things that that, that just need to be dealt with and end up not uh, being dealt with because our past experiences also have a profound uh, impact on how we end up following Jesus, uh, big time. Um, Like, I don't know if you've ever been, you know, in in your experience with the Lord trying to follow him and then you just end up feeling stuck or you feel like, man, I've gone as far as I can go. Or, you know, or maybe as far as you're willing to go or whatever it is, you feel like there is, there is uh, something in you that just can't progress past where you've reached your limit in terms of spiritual growth and development. And a lot of times this is, th- th- this can be because there is still pain or there is trauma that keeps you from progressing as a follower of Jesus. You just hit your, you just hit your max. Like, I can't go beyond that. And, um, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, Pete Scazzaro, it's a great book, by the way, he introduces this idea that emotional health and spiritual health are interconnected, that they're joined at the hip, really, um, that you can't really have one without the other, that, that if all you're doing is going after spiritual health, but but like emotionally you're immature, uh, it, it's gonna cause you to kind of stall out and not progress spiritually with God. And so Scazzaro uh, says this in, in, in his book, he says, um, in emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability, two things, to love Christ and others. So their past affects their their present ability to love Jesus, right? And also others. People understand, um, I'm sorry, they've realized from scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kinds of persons they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we've grown up in is the primary and accept in rare instances the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are, right? And the saying goes, right? Jesus may live in your heart, but your grandpa lives in your bones, right? That's how it goes, and so does grandma, and so does that weird uncle on your mom's side. Like, I mean, that's just, it's all, it's all in there. It's all there. It's all there. And what this then means is that perhaps um, the most important task that we have when it comes to following Jesus and also leaving a healthy, you know, uh, family legacy, setting the next generation up for success, perhaps the most important task we have is to deal with our past, is to deal with the things um, that, man, when we're honest, we sure hope these things don't get passed down. And we do this um, primarily by, by going back to go forward. We go back to go forward, okay? And, and what this means is that by going, by going back and identifying, we're going back and identifying the patterns uh, that we inherited in our family of origin in our culture or, or some of the different coping mechanisms we developed in order to deal with emotional pain. Um, and then what we have to do is we have to determine, once we recognize these things, we have to determine where these things are out of sync with the way of Jesus, where these things are out of sync with the life of Jesus, because there's a standard and there is an example that we read in the scriptures for what followers of Jesus are supposed to live and, and, and look like, and it's healthy for us to, to kind of evaluate and run you know, our patterns of thinking and our patterns of behavior and the way we show up in life and tend to be to, to kind of filter those through like, like the person and the work of Jesus so that we can go, hey man, is there some things that aren't right? There's some, there's, there's some things that if Jesus had his way, like, man, he would heal that in me. He would <laughs> deliver me from that. He would bring freedom to me in this area. Um, all right, so, not easy, right? A little complex. And I, and I know that, that uh, you know, this, this topic and some of the things I've already been sharing uh, can raise all sorts of red flags um, I'm sure that there are at least like two or three objections already um, that you're thinking or feeling as I've been talking about this. And um, I'm going to try, let me just try to address a few of them. Uh, there may be more, but let me just, just kind of get out ahead of, of maybe some of the, the, the reservation you might be feeling as I'm talking about this. Uh, some of the possible red flags or objections. Number one, um, some of you might be feeling, well, isn't it bad to, to revisit the past? Isn't it, isn't it bad to revisit the past? Like, uh, I thought that Jesus forgave my past. I thought that you know, like, 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 what's in the past is in the past, and what he's forgiven is forgiven, and uh, we shouldn't dwell on what has been forgiven. We shouldn't um, dwell on the past. We should forget those things. And there is some truth to that, um, for sure. Like, we don't want to be people who are obsessed by the things that Jesus has has dealt with and has been forgiven, for sure. But there is a difference between being forgiven and being healed. And and you can experience all the forgiveness you need from Jesus and still have areas of your life that are not whole, that are not healed. And so um, besides the fact that most of us just can't forget our past, like we're just like, as much as Jesus can, we can't. And, and it just won't seem to go away. And so because of this, there, there is oftentimes a real work that has to be done, an intentional process of revisiting some of these things so that we can go forward, revisiting these things for the purpose of healing and deliverance and freedom so that we can move forward as healthy people. So is it bad to revisit the past? I think it can be in certain, in certain ways. But it's not if, if the goal and the intention is for healing and to break off some things that have been maybe unfortunately passed into us from prior uh, generations, ancestors, things like that, all right? Maybe the second objection some of you might feel is like, I don't need to revisit, I don't need to revisit the, fa- the past. Like I, maybe you're thinking, man, my, my family of origin is fantastic, it's awesome. I don't have any serious problems that need revisiting. Thank God for that, like, that's awesome. Uh, but here's the thing, no matter how great your family of origin is, at some level, every family is dysfunctional, uh, right? Like, and all of us walk into adulthood with at least a little bit of emotional baggage from our family of origin, every single one of us. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I got a great family, I came from a great family, and you love your parents, look, it's great to honor your parents. I, that's important, and we do that, right? Um, scripture teaches us to do that. But honoring your parents doesn't mean turning a blind eye to their mistakes either, that's not that's not what we're what we're looking at here. I think about this all the time as a dad myself.' I'm wondering if like this or that is gonna cause my kids to end up in therapy someday, you know, I'm like uh, yeah, Lindsay and I actually will will have moments where where you know, man, the family just is nuts, and we're like something happens, and we're like, ah, uh, shoot, they're gonna be in therapy for that, like you know what I mean, and uh, <laughs> like that's not great, like that's not great, like can we limit those moments? Um, here, here's what I know: like, it, it, no matter how hard, how hard I try not to, uh, I will wound my kids at some point. I just will. Um, I will hurt them. I will shape them at times in in ways that are contrary or at odds to the way of Jesus. I they will see things in me that I wish they didn't see. I it, it just is going to happen. And hopefully, hopefully, I pass on more good than bad, more blessing than sin. But I'm well aware that I do not have it all together. And there are th- that there are things about me and my life, ways I have been formed by prior generations and decisions I've just made now in this generation that I'm unintentionally passing forward into my kids. And so, man, you may think I don't need to revisit the past, but like most of us have, have things that, if we're honest, uh, we would love to have not perpetuate and continue and maybe a third objection for some of us is like, hey, I get it, I'm just not, I'm just not all that interested in revisiting the past. If that's, <laughs> if that's you, you're thinking, man, I know there's some problems, I'm just not up for it. I'm not up for revisiting those things, dredging up the past, that's a complete can of worms, I'm not ready to go there, whatever the case. And if that's you, like, that is okay. Uh, this is for sure a safe place for you. Um, if you need to sit this one out or you wanna watch from a distance, I, that's, that's okay for you, um, I just want you to realize that, that if you don't deal with your past, it won't go away, and it will eventually be passed on. It'll eventually leak out. It'll eventually cause you problems, and so we want to intentionally deal with these things because Arrow goes on, and he says this. He says, because so few, feel, so few people do the hard work of going back in order to go forward, the symptoms of a disconnected spirituality are everywhere. The compartmentalization of our spirituality from the rest of our lives becomes necessary because there's so little integration. And he goes, "I know, I lived this way for years." And so, what we did right here, talking about the third, the fourth generation, and how how this, you know, in our family tree, these things these things form us, kind of gave just some scientific evidence based on epigenetics. I want to give, I want to build now like a biblical theology for this, so we can see also how the Bible teaches this way um, uh, about the significance of like generational issues and what it looks like when they aren't dealt with. Genesis chapter 12 is a, is a well-known story when God called Abram, who eventually his name would be changed to Abraham. It says in Genesis chapter 12, verse one, that the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land. I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him, who was his nephew, and Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Uh, pretty cool. Um, God is looking to start something brand new. God tells Abram to leave his family of origin uh, because he, he intends to start really a new family line through Abram, God's chosen people. Abram does this. It's remarkable. He actually abandons his family of origin. Some of you are like, can I be called to do that? Um, uh, he, he abandons his family of origin, abandons, you know, really um, the privilege and the wealth that maybe would have come from that um, to follow God's call on his life. And so we see in this, this, this initial part of the story, just a great man of faith, right? Great man of faith, like to believe it all and to pursue God, really not to even know the destination of where he's supposed to be going, and yet he does it anyway, But just because Abraham is a great man of faith doesn't mean that he had it all together. You just just move down um, six verses to verse 10, Genesis 2, verse 10, or 12, uh, verse 10. It says this, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down. We're going to do a lot of scripture here, okay? So just just, just dig in with me for a minute, okay? Um, It says, now there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, she would have her name changed to Sarah in, in a little while. Um, he says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say to, say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw how uh, that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and, and uh, female donkeys, men servants and maid servants and camels. Look at this in verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarah. Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. Then uh, Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Okay, so in this story, uh, absolutely insane, okay? Uh, Abram tells his wife to lie about the true nature of their relationship. Uh, which, which put her at severe risk of being taken uh, as a wife of Pharaoh, uh, right? Um, um, so, that, so that Abraham could save his own neck. It also set him up to inherit and receive uh, quite a bit of wealth, quite a bit of money. So he's definitely looking out for himself. Nice guy, right? Father of our faith. Want to have faith like that, right? But it's really just the beginning because a few years down the road, Abram um, has, has now been renamed Abraham, Sarai has been renamed Sarah. God is is doing a great work in this family. And you get into Genesis chapter 20. And it says, Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had gone, had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live, but if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. <laughs> kind of significant. Uh, verse eight, early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what, uh, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? Catch this last, last, last sentence. You have done things to me that should not be done. Interesting. You notice the same exact thing happens again. We're only eight chapters uh, down the road, uh, and what this means is that this isn't just a one-time slip-up for Abraham, right? This 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 sort of thing, this deception, uh, for sure. Like presenting his wife as his sister, can't even believe it. Uh, this is this is becoming like deeply ingrained. This is ongoing, sort of an inset sin in Abraham's life, and it's eventually passed down from father to son, from one generation to the next. Because several years later, Abraham now has two sons, um, Ishmael and Isaac. They're from two different mothers. Uh, they don't get along with each other because Isaac is, is the clear favorite. He's the promised uh, child. And here's a story about Abraham's son, Isaac. Okay, Genesis chapter 26, verse one says, now there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, "'Do not go down to Egypt. "'Live in the land where I tell you to live. "'Stay in this land for a while, "'and I will be with you and will bless you. "'For to you and your descendants "'I will give all these, all these lands "'and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham.'" This is a long story, so skip down to verse seven. And it says, "'When the men of that place asked him about his wife, "'he said, she is my sister, "'because he was afraid to say she's my wife. "'He thought the men of this place might kill me "'on account of Rebecca because she's beautiful.'" When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac having a good time with his wife, caressing his wife, Rebekah. He's like, huh? So um, Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she really is your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech, Abimelech said, um, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon, upon us. Okay. Crazy. Um, do you notice that Isaac does the exact same thing as his father? It's the exact same thing in the exact same city with the exact same king. Showing us what we already know that children have a tendency to repeat the mistakes of their parents. Do they not? The story doesn't end here. Not only is this sin passed down from father to son, but it even gets passed on to the grandson. Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau. They don't get along at all because Jacob is heavily favored by uh, their parents. Uh, There's a very long story in Genesis 27 about this. Here's a little excerpt. Uh, Genesis 27, verse 18. Uh, Jacob went to his father and said, "Uh, My father... Uh, Yes, my son, he answered, who is it? So uh, Jacob is is trying to deceive his father into into giving him the birthright, the inheritance. He's trying to steal it from his older brother Esau. They are twins born like a minute apart. Um, Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. He's lying to his dad. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac is blind, so he can't, he can't see with his eyes which son is, uh, it is that he's talking to. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? The Lord your God gave me success, Jacob replied. Complete religious garbage. Uh, you know, it was God. God did this. Um, giving God credit for his deception. Then, then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether you really are my son Esau or not. So Esau was a very hairy uh, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, if you're into that thing, it's kind of, kind of weird, but gross. Like, in, for many of us, like just hairy all over, and uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe, maybe that's where uh, you know, uh, natural selection uh, people started to get their their ideas. But um, uh, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob um, had smooth skin, right? He had smooth skin, and, and uh, so there's a clear difference between them. So uh, Isaac wanted to touch his son uh, to find out if it really was Esau. Jacob went close to his father who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau because Jacob had put you know, animal hair on him to kind of give the, uh, the impression that he was Esau. Uh, Isaac did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Then he said, are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Okay, so Isaac's an old man at this time. He's, he's blind as a bat. Jacob lies to his dad's face, bold face lie. And then he steals the blessing or the inheritance from Esau. This lie becomes really the first of many because Jacob goes on to earn a reputation really of that of a con man. Uh, In fact, his name in Hebrew literally means a deceiver, a liar, a thief, or a cheat. Like, so really what is going on, this is the the reputation Jacob would have from this point on. So the point here is that the generational sin um, not only lives on of deception, but it seems to get worse the longer it's allowed to live, right? It doesn't seem to get any better in the following generations. In fact, this sin even lives on in Jacob's children. This is the last story, okay? And I know you're getting bored. But um, you turn over to chapter 37 here in Genesis and many years have now passed. Jacob, right, the con man, the deceiver, the man who has this critical moment of wrestling with God, another theophany, uh, he's touched by, by the Lord. He walks with a limp the rest of his life. The Lord changes his name from Jacob to Israel, significant because of what his name meant versus now what his name means and what he's called. Big deal. Um, but, but you know, years go by, and Jacob is now an older man. Uh, he has 12 sons from four women. And uh, Genesis 37, verse 2 says um, of his son Joseph, uh, who was who's kind of the the, the favorite son uh, because he was the son of... of uh, um, of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of, of Jacob's favorite wife. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Rayton and Rankin. So it um, jo- says Joseph, a, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks uh, with his brothers, the sons of Bilha and the sons of Zilpah. Okay. Super attractive names. Um, these were his father's wives, two of them, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So he's tattling on his brothers to his dad. Now Israel, his right, name has been changed, formerly Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. This is the coat of many colors that maybe you talk about in Sunday school. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him, all right? So then what happens is they go on and they try to conspire against Joseph, and um, you know Joseph is kind of like this young bratty, you know, in, in a way, and he is... You know, kind of rubbing it in the faces of his brothers. He's telling them the dreams uh, where basically he has of them like bowing down and worshiping him. Like not not a lot of wisdom there in telling your older brothers this. Um, and so they conspire against him. They wanna kill Joseph because they're jealous. And um, they they uh, they take him, uh, they, they beat him up, uh, throw him into a pit, they're ready to kill him. And one of his older brothers speaks up and says, don't kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. Like I'm not sure which is better um but, but right, I mean, that, he's, like, thinking, well, at least, like, we'll, we'll do that. We won't kill you. Um, it says that they took Joseph's robe. This is verse 31. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood of an animal, right? They took the ornamented robe, the coat of many colors, back to their father. Uh, this is Jacob, right? And, and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has... Surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. Isn't that interesting? That's weird, right? The ones who did this are comforting their father. It's all deception. Um, so his, so Jacob wept for Joseph. Right. Uh, meanwhile, the Midianites um, sold Joseph. In Egypt to Potiphar. So the brothers sold Joseph to the Midianites, the Midianites sold Joseph uh, to Potiphar in Egypt, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. So look, we got boldface lying to their dad's face. Like, look, he must be dead now. And um, do you see the irony in the story where the con man is conned, where the player is played, you know, where the liar is lied to by his own children? Are you starting to see a pattern sort of emerge here in Abraham and then in Isaac and then in Jacob and then in Jacob's sons? You've seen the pattern. What we're really seeing here, generational sins of like deception, of lying, misogyny. Really, um, uh, there, there's some things you could look at in terms of sexual addiction and for sure favoritism and si- sibling rivalry. There's all kinds of junk. And, and we see this pattern of father to son, right? Father to son. Um, son to grandson grandson to great-grandson. And we see this in our own lives too, right? That this pattern of father to son, mother to daughter, generation to generation is not unique to Abraham and his family because this is something that we all have to deal with as well. I wanna I want to just show you this another way, um, not in story form, but in an idea. Exodus 34, there is a climactic moment. If you've ever read Exodus 34, where God proclaims his name over Moses on Mount Sinai, Many scholars argue that these two verses I'm about to read um, are the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible, Um, because uh, throughout Scripture, these two verses are said many different ways. It says this in Exodus 34, and he, so this is God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the... He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. All right, interesting. You can just leave that up for a second. How many of you are down with the first part? Like, it's like awesome, like compassionate and gracious, full of anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, and maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Like, anybody down with the first part? But how many of you are completely confused with God just like unleashing on the grandkids? Right? How is that justice at all? Like, what is this all about? I, I, I mean, I don't have time to give like great explanation for this. I'll give you just like a simple explanation of what's going on. Um, the simple explanation is that this can't mean what it seems to mean, or or it can't mean what it sounds like um, at a face value reading in the English translation. It doesn't. It doesn't really mean what it looks like it means. The main reason for that, just for me, to, is because here in Exodus and in the Torah. Moses and God actually say the exact opposite things in terms of like re- releasing like this, this type of punishment on, uh, on people. So, so what is really going on here? What is really happening in this verse? What is God really getting at? I think that there are layers of meaning to this verse, um, right? That, that the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, right? I think, I think there's layers to this. First layer I want you to look at is this idea that a parent's sin has consequences for their children and grandchildren, it's just—it's just what the scriptures teach. It's also what we know. You know, a classic example—not to harp on this, uh, because I know that a lot of us are affected by it. But you know, divorce is a classic example of this, right? Where if parents get a get a divorce, it's usually the children who will suffer the fallout. We know this. That um, in spite of our culture's best attempts to normalize divorce and make us feel empowered to do whatever it is that make us that makes us happy, divorce has proven to be like a real danger zone for children. It just has especially when you weigh out the emotional pain, the trust issues, the insecurity, confusion over identity, fear of commitment, or, uh, or fear of marriage later on in life. And there are some kids that grow up and they seem to do okay, and there are others who grow up and, and seem to not do okay. The point here is that when the parents sin, it's the children who are often the collateral damage. And we're seeing with this in lots of different examples, lots of different things where the kids end up being the ones who take the brunt of of the consequence, because a parent's sin has consequence for their for their children and their grandchildren. It just it just does. The second layer I want you to look at is that is that we see that that sin often just runs in the family, kind of like this runaway train. It's like something that man I, I didn't even I didn't even ask for that because uh, I, I, you can't you can't you know you can't ask for the family you're born into. And a lot of us you know we're just born into some an environment or into a family dynamic where there is real challenges that we have to deal with that other people don't. Much like your DNA or the color of your eyes, sin also exists in your genetic code, and it is passed down from parent to parent, like, to, to grandchild, right? And so the point I'm trying to make is that none of us really start off with a blank slate, you know? Uh, we all want to believe in the innocence of children, uh, but for the most part, it's a myth. Like, it, it's not true, Um uh, because every child that's born has a certain bent towards sin, everyone. A sinful nature, um, because for as perfect as that newborn may look, something in their nature is, is, is wrong. Something in their nature is still off kilter. Not only uh, you know, are they naturally bent towards sin, but they are nat- naturally bent in a very specific direction that is highly influenced by their family of origin. They, they just are. Which is why we say things like this, you know, like father, like son, or the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right? We say these kinds of things, because we understand this intuitively, that this happens. Um, And and like I mentioned earlier, even when when, when we determine to not be anything like our mom or dad, years later, we find ourselves raising a family and a ways into adulthood, and we start to see similarities that we swore we would never have. Like, what in the world, you know? And so this stuff runs in the family and there are things that if we don't deal with it, they'll continue to run in the family. Um, And then the third layer, uh, I I would just say, you gotta be encouraged that you can break free from sin that goes back for generations. It doesn't have to continue. Uh, It doesn't have to continue. And so what do we understand by sin? What do I mean when I say sin? There's three, three different types of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about sin done by you So these are things that you have done where it creates shame and guilt or regret and you're just like, you carry this stuff. Like, I wish if I could go back, I would change that. It's also sin that is done to you. So abuse, betrayal, that leads to all sorts of emotional pain that gives us um, cognitive distortions or or a cognitive bias where now we see things differently and even inaccurate to, to what reality is because of the trauma that we have faced. And so um, what happens is that, that cognitive bias, that, that uh, those, those rose-tinted lenses that we see life through now, we will pass those into the next generation if we don't deal with the pain and the trauma that we feel, that, that we've experienced. And then the third type of, of sin is the sin that is done around you, right? So it's the family of origin stuff. It's community that you're, that you're a part of. It's, it's, it's your country, right? It's society. And the good thing in all of this is that there is mercy waiting for you and I to break free. We can break free from all of this stuff. And so how do you do that? Um, man, I'm just running out of time, so I'll give it to you very quickly and you can, uh, you can just look into this stuff more. I think, I think there's four fast things for how you break free uh, from this kind of stuff. Number one, you got to identify generational sin or generational curses. You've got, you got, you got to be willing to identify them and acknowledge them um, because you cannot change what you do not see, right? Uh, you, do not, you cannot change what you are unwilling to acknowledge. Like, man, this stuff has been around for a long time. Um, so there's a simple prayer. You pray here, like, like man, God, is there anything I don't see? Is there anything I'm oblivious to? Anything that you know about me that I don't know about me? Anything that's existed in my family that I I haven't seen, that I need to see so that I can cut this off? So you identify it, and then there's repentance is number two. So this is where we, we then take what we are acknowledging as an issue, and we then acknowledge it before God. We acknowledge it to the Lord. And then we, we, you know, repentance is really turning to go the opposite direction. So we resolve in ourselves, like I'm not gonna, I, I'm gonna do my best to, to 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 walk away from this. To the strength of the Holy Spirit in me, I'm gonna have power to do different than what I've what I've done for most of my life. So there's got to be repentance, acknowledging the issue before God, and then walking differently. And then and then there's two real important things to this, I think. Also, one is like forgiving ancestors. So so you you, you come, you know, in a time of prayer with the Lord and. And, and this is where you just, re- you just release ancestors from any blame. You say, God, you know, like, I know that some, there's some junk in my family tree. There's some things I wish wasn't there. Maybe you've done the Ancestry DNA and done that, and, and you're like, oh, man, there's some crazy people. And, you know, you just, you just release them. You're like, man, God, I, I just want to release them. I want to forgive them. I want to let that stuff go. And then, and then the really important step four um, is you then want to intentionally bless the next generation. So th- this is where you, you bless them in prayer. When they don't even see it, you're praying and interceding and you're blessing them. This is also where you intentionally lay hands on them and you bless them. You wanna bless them as a parent, as a father, as a mother. You wanna, you wanna, be, you, you wanna, you wanna bless them. You wanna give what wasn't given to you, okay? And then begin a generational blessing. So look, like your past hasn't shaped your present. Your past has shaped your present, but it doesn't have to determine your future, does not have to determine your future. I told a story last week, and uh, I'll probably just close with this and cut uh, about another hour <laughs> worth of <laughs> uh, stuff. Um, you can go ahead and come up. I told you a story last week um, about my dad and, and about our family and about how, uh, you might remember this, where, where dad, years ago, he had this dream of the, the family tombstone at uh, Glendale Cemetery here in town. Uh, th- there's, there's several Lombards buried in this one area, and there's a large tombstone that just says Lombard on it, and uh, he, was, he had this, this dream or this vision of, of that tombstone falling over on its face. And uh, it, it was so powerful to him that he just, uh, I mean, he was moved uh, by that. He thought that that was a very significant picture. And, uh, and so dad heard my story, uh, or heard the story I shared last week because he listened to the message. And his, then he emailed me uh, more detail. And I thought it was worth bringing it back up. So he said to me, he says, I was in the States. This was years ago. He was staying with his mom and dad before they had passed away. He says, I went to the cemetery. And, and, and I was, he says he was really trying to deal with things around his, his, his granddad's father. So this would have been his great-grandfather because he was a 32nd degree Mason, which is the highest level. Uh, and and uh, all the unholy spiritual stuff that went with that was in the family and word curses, things that, 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 are, that are done at that level. He said, my, "My grandfather came from a family that had wealth. Uh, they owned a wholesale jewelry business for many years in Des Moines. I was in downtown Des Moines, and um, says the best I can tell, my great-great grandfather, or, um, or my, yeah, or I'm sorry, my great grandfather did not like my grand, my granddad becoming a pastor. So, my dad's grandfather was the first pastor in the family. He was a he was a circuit riding Methodist preacher, and." Um, except he wasn't riding a horse as he was driving around, but he was a circuit preacher. Um, and my dad says, I don't have quotes, but he told me, um, but I, but I, or he says, I heard that my grandfather's father told him in essence that he wouldn't amount to anything. Um, and my grandfather seemed to have been cut off from the family wealth at that point when he went into the ministry. says, so my grandfather then lived with almost nothing for the rest of his life. Uh, tremendous poverty in that generation of my family. Uh, it was so bad that when when my, my dad and his family moved from Lincoln, Nebraska to Des Moines, uh, starting my dad's uh, ninth grade year, that my grandfather, my dad's dad, gave their house in Lincoln to his parents because they had nothing. And my dad says, you know, as a teenager, I was bothered with this, Bothered. he was bothered with his dad for giving the house to his parents, he goes, because then we we virtually had nothing. He says, so I went to this tombstone and and I and I prayed. And he says, I wanted to break off some things in our family. I, I wanted to break off a poverty mentality that had, that had been carried on for generations. And the emotions associated with lack and the word curses spoken over our family, especially especially those who had gone into ministry and that in that line, a, a, a branch of the family. So he said this, he says, on the day I went to the cemetery, it was maybe January. So again, Glendale Cemetery, snow on the ground. He says, I anointed the headstone and I prayed and a demon appeared. He says, I was shocked. So I decided to leave and and come back at a time when I was more prayed up. Like I'd, It is just uh, such a picture, the family being under attack. He sits there and he's trying to break things off and the enemy has no interest in those things being broken. Those areas of dysfunction, those those beliefs, those mindsets, those ways of thinking being broken and dad says he goes there and he's trying to do this and all of a sudden there's resistance, spiritual resistance, a demon appears and he says, so I decided to come back at a time when I was more prayed up. <laughs> he says the second time I came back, I anointed the headstone. I prayed and had breakthrough. Really powerful. He says, then a third time I came back to release blessings, to release the blessings from my granddad on, onto the family. And I just, I just love this story. It's such a valuable picture for us of what it looks like to be intentional, to acknowledge to identify where there have been problems, where there has been dysfunction, to repent and to say, God, like I know this is in my story, I know this is in my life, but I do not want this to continue. And then to forgive like those in our family tree, ancestors, parents, grandparents, great grandparents, and to just forgive them. Like there's nothing they can do about it now, it's over. And, and, and then releasing, saying, In my generation right now, I'm gonna release blessing over my kids, over, over my grandkids. I'm gonna release this over them. I'm gonna declare, I'm gonna draw a line in the sand that, that says, No more, no longer will these things that have, that have troubled me in my life trouble them. And I'm gonna break this stuff off right now. And the enemy does not want you to do this, doesn't want you. To do this, hmm. I'm going to call it call it good. I think. One second here. Tough subjects. But look, like we're gonna always be people who are stuck in our emotional and spiritual immaturity until we decide to be people who deal with our past and deal with those things. We will hit a block, we will hit our limit, we will, we will have difficulty getting to that next level of where we really wanna go with the Lord because there's just things that are in our way. And so would you just stand with me this morning? Would you would you go ahead and just uh, bow your heads with me? I'd like to keep this um, as, as, a, as a pretty reverent moment as we continue on uh, here and get ready to close. Um, every head bowed, uh, eyes closed. I want you just to view this as a moment where you're standing before the Lord. Uh, view this as a moment between you and God. And what I love about what we're talking about today is that there is just so much hope. See, in my family, it was my great-grandfather who stood up and said, enough's enough. And he drew a line in the sand and he began a legacy, a generational legacy that, uh, of spiritual heritage that continued to the third and the fourth generation. And I don't know what kind of family you come from. I don't know what your family of origin is like, but. But for some of you, maybe you do come from a legacy like that, and others of you, this is your moment. Like my great-grandfather, it's time to stand up and to begin a legacy in your generation that will bless those who come after you. And if you're just here this morning and you would say, Pastor Jordan, like, like yeah, tough stuff for sure, but, man, there are some things that I have noticed in my life and even in my family that uh, I wish was not there and that I know are like, are like, in essence, that gift that keeps on giving from previous, previous generations and I need, I need healing, I need freedom in this area, I need God to come and break these things off. Could I just see your hand? Come on, there's a lot of us, right? Just be honest with the Lord today. It's time to just let some stuff go, it's time to break some things off. It doesn't matter if you're young, it doesn't matter if you're old, it doesn't matter if you feel like you've already done your tour of duty and now it's too late, it is not. God, right now, he can set people free, he can change things, he can begin to alter the genetic code in our bodies so that what we pass on into the next generation is is, is all good stuff, it's blessing, it's things we want them to inherit. And so, Father, right now, I pray healing and freedom and wholeness and all those things over every person under the sound of my voice right now with hands raised, admitting and acknowledging, God, there are things that are happening in our lives that, man, we, sometimes we just feel victim to, like we didn't ask for this. And, and, and for some reason, it just keeps popping up. It keeps popping up and causing me problems and, 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 and making issues for me and my family. And so, Lord, I praise courage and resolve right now. Collectively, we draw the line in the sand And so Lord, we say the good things, the things that we wanna honor and we wanna bless in our family of origin, God, would you give us the ability to carry those things forward and to honor and bless our parents, but God, where there are things that need to stop, where there are things that need to not continue into my generation and into the next, I ask for courage right now, God, for us to draw that line, to say no more, to say enough's enough, to say he who the Son has set free is really free. It's not just a thought or a figment of our imagination. If you say we're free, then we're free. And so, God, I pray right now you would break every chain. You would free every mind. You would release your thoughts and your ideas over every person here right now. God, I pray truth into the room. I pray truth right now that would combat every lie that maybe we have believed, every lie that we have lived, everything, God, that, that, that is not uh, anywhere close to the abundant life you came and bled and died for us to have. And so God, right now I pray freedom, I pray a lightness, uh, rip these things off our back, God, the heaviness that we feel. And Lord, I pray we'd walk out of here just just uh, new people, new creation, people with hope. God, op- give us the courage to to go to our kids, to go to the ones that are experiencing some of this garbage that's left over. And give us the courage to to repent and to make things right. Give us courage, oh God, to identify and to repent and to forgive and to bless. We give you thanks and praise today, oh God. We plead your blood. Father, where there is just something that it seems too impossible for us to change, we plead your blood, because your blood's enough. I thank you that your blood is enough. Your blood is enough, that it covers all of our shortcomings, it covers all of our sin, It covers everything in our generations past, and it covers everything in our generations in the future. And so we plead the blood of Jesus. We're not trying anything that's self-help. We're not trying to to effort our way or to muster up some sort of strength or to to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps this morning. We rely solely on the blood of Jesus that has power, the victorious blood of Jesus that has power to break off every stronghold, every lie, every type of deception, every assignment by the, by the evil one. We come before you, surrender today, and we say enough is enough, oh God. Do in my generation what you wanted to do in the previous generations. Do in my generation, God, what only you can do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen and amen.